Please turn with me in your Bibles to the Gospel of Mark, once again, continuing on in our exposition of this most excellent Gospel. We look at verses 20 through 30 today of Mark chapter 3. Mark chapter 3, starting in verse 20. The title of our sermon this afternoon is The Binding of the Strong Man. Let us pray together once again. Father God, we once again come before Thee, asking, O Lord, that Thou wouldst be our vision, that we might see all things through Thy truth, the truth of Thy Word, and of Jesus Christ being led by the Holy Spirit. O Lord, help us now in the preaching of the Word to hear. Lord, rebuke Satan from stealing the word from our heart. Holy Spirit, I beseech thee that thou wouldst apply the word to our hearts. These thy sheep would be benefited. The word would be effectual to their sanctification, to their joy, to their love of thee. This Lord's Day would be truly a taste of heaven as we meditate on thee, O God. Lord, please help me, thy weak and unprofitable servant, to accurately divide thy word with passion, truth, accuracy, fluency, and love. Lord, help us to see more of thy Christ, the Savior whom thou hast given to us, Jesus, that we might bow before thee more and more as the strongest of all men. The one who comes to those gates, those ancient doors, says, Be ye cast down. Who is this King of glory? Lord, we know. In part, but yet we do. That thou art the King of glory, O Jesus. Before thee every knee bows and every tongue confesseth unto thy praise, thy honor. The angels Fly around thy throne and fall down before it, singing forth thy praises. The Lamb who was slain is worthy to receive all honor, glory, power, and wisdom. And we attribute those things to thee, Jesus, by the power of the Holy Spirit. Increase our faith and help us to see thee as thou truly art, even a small bit more. What we have had is not sufficient up till this point. Grant us more of thee. In Jesus' name we ask. Amen. Amen. The binding of the strong man. Dear congregation, as we know, many Reformed churches end up kind of being too cessationist in that they don't give Satan his proper place. They don't give the Holy Spirit his proper place. It's a tendency that we all can fall into. Satan is a strong, strong man in this passage before us. He is a strong and prowling lion, the scriptures say, that he prowleth about seeking whom he may devour. That he desires to sift us as wheat and that he is more powerful than any of us could ever imagine. The most beautiful and powerful angel that God ever created. All of that power and beauty And glory now turned for wicked ends. To destroy God. To war against him. It's feeble, but that is his attempt. And where it's not so feeble is God's creation. Specifically his church. He desires to sift and destroy. And prowls around looking for opportunities to do so. We have a threefold enemy as we talk about often. The world, or our sin, the world and Satan. All three war against us spiritually to undo the work of God in our lives. Now, it's quite easy to see Satan at work and evilness at work and wickedness at work in the world, especially right now. But any time in history, we're not special. It's also easy to see Satan tempting us in our own sin. 
Satan tempting us in our own sin, playing off of our own wicked and evil desires, our fallen and fleshly concerns and desires, placing shiny trinkets before us to lead us astray into further error, sowing seeds of discord and bitterness in our hearts. That's fairly easy to see as well. We must remember that he is active in the church always, always, that he is our bosom foe. He's not to be underestimated whatsoever. He is the strong man. But we must resist him, the Bible says. Stand firm against him. How? You cannot, nor can I. But we have a brother, an elder brother, who has broad shoulders and a deep chest and is stronger than the strong man. He is the strongest man who lifteth up those ancient gates and teareth them apart as a Samson of old. He is the defender of his church. He is the keeper of his church and of his people. And he loveth them with a love that is sure and steadfast and everlasting and shall never let us go out of his hand. That is good news. So while we must respect in an aspect, I use that word loosely, the power of Satan, recognize his power, recognize his desires to destroy us and his attempts to do so, we must Hide ourselves in the folds of our Father's robes. I've given this illustration before, and I'll give it again. There's a famous picture of John F. Kennedy, where he's sitting at his desk. It was during the Bay of Pigs incident, and there's all these reporters in front of his desk in the Oval Office. He's making this insane decision, a decision that has so much weight and importance and practicality for the world at that moment. And underneath the table, because it's taken from behind, the desk, underneath the desk, is his son playing with a toy. One of his children playing with a toy. Unaware, but resting sure in his powerful and strong father. How much more our own God, who has demonstrated to us his power and the crucifixion, the life, the crucifixion, and death, resurrection, and ascension, and intercession of Jesus Christ on our behalf. We have a strong God. The God-man. Christ Jesus. Amen. Let us read together verses 20 through 30 of Mark chapter 3. Hear now the word of the Lord, verse 20. And the multitude cometh together again, so that they could not so much as eat bread. And when his friends heard of it, they went out to lay hold on him, for they said, He is beside himself. And the scribes came. The scribes which came down from Jerusalem said, He hath Beelzebub, and by the prince of the devils casteth he out devils. And he called them unto him, and said unto them in parables, How can Satan cast out Satan? If a kingdom be divided against itself, that kingdom cannot stand. And if a house be divided against itself, that house cannot stand. And if Satan rise up against himself and be divided, he cannot stand, but hath an end. No man can enter into a strong man's house and spoil his goods, except he will first bind the strong man, and then he will spoil his house. Verily I say unto you, all sins shall be forgiven unto the sons of men, and blasphemies wherewith soever they shall blaspheme. But he that shall blaspheme against the Holy Ghost hath never forgiveness, but is in danger of eternal damnation. Thus far the reading of God's holy word. Oh, sorry, because they said he hath an unclean spirit. Let's see three points in our text today. First, truth opposed. Truth opposed. Number two, truth upheld. Truth upheld. And number three, truth rejected. Truth rejected. Truth opposed, truth upheld, truth rejected. First, truth opposed. We see this in verses 20 through 22. And the multitude cometh together again, so they could not so much as eat bread. And when his friends heard of it, they went out to lay hold on him, for they said, He is beside himself. And the scribes which came down from Jerusalem said, He hath Beelzebub, and by the prince of the devils casteth he out devils. In verses 20 and 21, we see a description that we have not seen thus far in our journey through the Gospel of Luke. 
Namely, opposition against Christ by those who are not his enemies, outwardly. Jesus has been opposed at many points so far in Mark. Over and over again we've seen it, and we will continue to see it. But it has always been by his outward foes, his enemies. In our passage now, we see a change. We see something new. Now even his friends come out to lay hold on him because they thought he was beside himself. Let us notice a few things in this most unpleasant scene before us. Look first at who it was that came against him. Who came against him? Our translators have rendered the phrase as his friends. His friends. This is altogether accurate, but the original Greek is not, not nearly so specific. It's not so specific. The phrase in the original can literally be rendered as those from his side. It's a Greek idiom. This ambiguity in the original has led many to speculate as to whom is being referred to here as his friends. Some have translated as his family, etc. Some, especially looking to the context of verse 33, where it is specifically Jesus' mother and his brothers, his immediate family that comes out against him to take him away from his ministry, then therefore take this phrase as referring to the immediate family of Jesus. Others see it as referring to the more distant relatives of Christ, such as uncles and cousins. Still others see it as a reference to the associates of Jesus, the followers of John the Baptist, possibly, or even the disciples of Christ themselves. But since the scripture is clear where it is clear, like in verse 31, and is ambiguous where it is ambiguous, we will trust and take the rendering of our translators. Some of those who were friendly towards Jesus is essentially what we we must take away. Some of those who were friendly towards Jesus, who at this point were admirers, admirers in some way of his ministry, who had not written him off thus far or opposed him, were now coming against him in opposition, believing him to be out of his mind, to be crazy, desiring to take him away from his public ministry, lest he do damage to the faith, the cause of the the religious faith of the time, or even make himself to be ashamed, bring shame on himself. They're going to save Jesus from this shame. They're going to save Jesus from making a mockery of religion. Now what we must take away from this is we must remember that Christ was a man, as Isaiah 53.3 said, who was despised and rejected of men, a man of sorrows, and acquainted with grief, a man who was in all points tempted, like as we are, yet without sin, as Hebrews 4.15 says. So, of anyone who has ever lived, he, being the perfect incarnate God himself, experienced the pain of betrayal more than any man who ever lived, ever, because he was the least worthy of being betrayed. Only those who have experienced it, only those who have experienced it, can tell what a flood of pain and grief and anxiety fills the heart when it is betrayed, when it is doubted, castigated, and slandered by those who were thought to be its bosom friends and closest allies. David, a man who is intimately acquainted with such grief, spoke to this when he said in Psalm 41.9, Yea, mine own familiar friend, in whom I trusted, which did eat of my bread, hath lifted up his heel against me. An open rebuke from an enemy, as the scriptures say, is better than a concealed kiss from a close friend. However, almost nothing is worse than open assault from those whom we must trust. It's a painful experience. Let this further teach us both the unspeakable evil of slander, gossip, and betrayal, especially in the local church, as well as the comfort we have in Christ Jesus when our friends do oppose us. They turn into foes, and our loved ones become our opponents. Let us realize that we have great comfort, because Christ well knew this pain himself. Therefore, we can fly as Christians to Jesus. 
We can come unto him and go to him. In our own pain, our own grief, our own temptation, we can come boldly unto the throne of grace that we might obtain mercy and find grace to help in time of need. Knowing that since Jesus himself hath suffered being tempted, he is now able to succor them that are tempted. Hebrews 4, 15 and 2, 18. That's a great encouragement. We are not special as human beings. We don't ever go through circumstances that even other human beings haven't gone through. But we must always look to Jesus in all of our trials, our griefs, our troubles, our pains, our anxieties, knowing that he has suffered more than them. He's experienced them all. And so now we can come unto him knowing that he can comfort us intimately. He already could as God, but as God-man, experiencing them himself, he can now succor or help or comfort us in a way that is most helpful to us. Notice also next, when these people came against him. So these friends, these people that previously did not oppose him, now are coming against him. Well, when was it? These friends came to take Jesus away when he was actively ministering. He's in the work of ministering. He's going to and fro. His ministry is growing. He's healing. Now huge crowds just keep coming out no matter how much he tries to get away from him. As we saw last week, he had to cast out a small boat into a lake to even preach to the multitude or else they would throng him and crush him. When the work of God is going forward, dear congregation, often with its greatest fervency and strength, then we can be sure that Satan will strike. He always wants to strike then, while the iron is hot, while God is doing something among us. Revival breaks out. Satan's in the midst. You look at the history of the Great Awakening, the first Great Awakening. There was so many genuine revi- so much genuine revival happening, so many genuine conversions. So much true emotionalism coming from being converted and the Spirit of God was poured out in a different way than it had been. And at the same time, there was all sorts of false wonders. Pure emotionalism. Mere emotionalism. All sorts of weird things happening to distract from the true work. And that's why Jonathan Edwards, one of the key players in the Great Awakening, wrote his book on religious affections saying, let's not discount everything going on. Let's see how this plays in. Let's give an account of some of these things and put them up against Scripture and articulate them and try them. So when the work of God is going forward, when things are going really well, I'm always then looking for Satan. Where is he? He's going to strike somewhere. And we should too in our own lives. He wants to distract us. In the next verse, verse 22 We read this, and the scribes said, He hath Beelzebub, and by the prince of the devils casteth he out devils. So when friends are stirred up against us, notice the context and the connection, we can be sure that our enemies are short behind. When our friends turn against us, we can be sure that our enemies are short behind, desiring to add insult to injury, to add their aha, aha, to our friends, thou art the man. Notice their accusation. What do they say? That Jesus was doing the work of Satan. That Jesus Christ was doing the work of Satan. Specifically, he was doing the work of the false god Baal of the Old Testament. Baal. In Aramaic, it's B-E-L instead of B-A-A-L. Specifically, the false god of Baal, who was so often leading the people of Israel astray in the Old Testament. Time and time again, they fell for the Baals. They got caught up in Baal worship, turned away from Jehovah God to worship the Baals. So this is the god of the Urkonites. We can read about that in 2 Kings chapter 1. Now, the word itself signifies something like master fly or Lord of the Flies, or Baal the Fly. It's a horrible slander. It's a horrible misrepresentation. And it's an inexcusable sin, as we will cover. Christ was the promised Messiah, Genesis 3.15, foreshadowing 
That there would come a one out of the seed of the woman who would crush the head of the serpent. He was promised. He was prophesied. He was looked for. Where is the Christ? They were constantly looking for the Savior, the Deliverer of God's people, who would bring in also the Gentiles. And here he is, the Savior of the people, the promised Messiah, God manifest in the flesh, Emmanuel, God with us, the one who should save his people from their sins, And here they are calling him a mere modern manifestation of one of Israel's ancient false gods. That's their accusation. Keep that in mind as we move forward, especially with our third point. Our second point, the truth upheld. You see this in verses 23 through 27. Verse 23 reads, And he called them unto him and said unto them in parables, How can Satan cast out Satan? And if a kingdom be divided against itself, that kingdom cannot stand. And if a house be divided against itself, that house cannot stand. And if Satan rise up against himself and be divided, he cannot stand, but hath an end. No man can enter into a strong man's house and spoil his goods, except he will first bind to the strong man, and then he will spoil his house. Jesus as his usual method was, responds in an apt parable that highlights the absurdity of their claim, of their accusation. To attribute to Jesus the work of Satan was just as ridiculous a proposition as to say that a kingdom that is torn apart by civil unrest and civil war can stand. That's his point. Notice, though, that Jesus was working to destroy Satan in his works. He was not serving under him. We've seen this over and over again. He's cast out demons. He's silenced demons. He's healed the sick. And some sicknesses that were caused by demonic and satanic activity. He's taught against the false teachers who were getting their doctrine from Satan. So this was the particular foolishness of this wicked accusation. That didn't even make any sense. Jesus first asks this, how can Satan cast out Satan? So not only was the allegation unfounded, it was also nonsensical. That's what Jesus is highlighting. It's as if he said, ye attribute to me the work of Satan. Ye think that I am his errand boy and his happy servant and the good works that I do. Tell ye me then, how doth this union operate? How can it be that I, whom ye think doeth the works of Satan, can work against my own master? How can Satan be destroying himself? Now, something we can take away is that it's almost always the case when an accusation is made against us, we we are to look at it, think it over, take criticism, learn from it, see if there's something of value there, but it's almost always the case that accusations which make no logical sense, have no bearing in reality, are not even based in reality then. And thus after some consideration, can be cast aside as foolishness and irrelevant. Next, Jesus gives the example of kingdom and home. Verses 23-24, And if a kingdom be divided against itself, that kingdom cannot stand. And if a house be divided against itself, that house cannot stand. A brief glance of history of any country, including our own, we had a civil war, remember? Even our own times will confirm that a nation ravaged by civil war and division cannot long stand. It never does. Its enemies will take the opportunity to break in while it is distracted with infighting. Many of us here know also, in a home setting, what a painful and tragic reality it is to live in a divided house when children are forced to choose one parent over the other. When immediate family becomes bitter enemies, that house has come to its end and it shall not stand. Cannot. In like manner, Satan's forces, Satan's house, Satan's kingdom, wrongly called, cannot be against themselves or else he cannot stand in that day when he goes out to fight. From this, we also should take a moment, dear congregation, of doxological reflection praiseful, thankful, gracious reflection to praise and thank Christ that his kingdom is not divided no matter what happens. 
His kingdom is not divided. He cares for his sheep. He is the shepherd of his sheep. The church, the bride of Christ, is God's own house, his dwelling place. His dwelling place. The church is the means by which God builds his kingdom here on earth, through us. Therefore, our Lord, as we see constantly throughout the New Testament commands, tolerates no division, no infighting, no sectarianism, no rebellion in his house and kingdom. Why? Because he is the foundation upon which the church is built, his church, his bride. He is the foundation. We are, by the work of Christ, made saints, made his children, united to him, and brought into the church, which is the household of God, and are built up upon the foundation of the apostles and the prophets, Jesus Christ himself being the chief cornerstone, Ephesians 2, 19 and 20. So Jesus is the anchor of our faith, the anchor of the church, the perfecter and author of his people's faith. And through faith in him, through faith in him, through adherence to his doctrines, through obedience to his commands, the church stands united. Even with all this crazy stuff going on, even with so many churches that have division within them, the ontological reality of it, to use philosophical terms, is that the church is not divided. Jesus knows his church. It may be sinful. It may be selfish. It may struggle. It may be hateful at times towards its own members. But it is still his church. He loves it. He protects it. He grows it. And it is united to him and in him. Therefore, all divisions, all infighting, is completely done away with by submission to Christ in faith and in practice. This is why Jesus has given his church the means of grace in preaching and teaching. One of the reasons. Ephesians 4, 11, 13 says, And he gave some pastors and teachers for the perfecting of the saints, for the work of the ministry, for the edifying of the body of Christ, till we all come in the unity of the faith. So the accurate proclamation of the gospel, dear congregation, the the accurate proclamation of the word of Christ brings unity in the body of Christ. The accurate proclamation of the teachings of Scripture, the word of Christ, brings unity in the body of Christ. That's why we need to cling to the truth of Scripture in joy. Now on this, what is unity in the church? It's a good question. I have talks a lot with different denominational pastors about what unity is. Does it mean that everyone agrees on every slight point of doctrine? Every minutia of practice? Every detail of the living out of our faith? Although my friends in the RPCNA seem to be saying that in our conversations, that this is what the unity of faith means, I do not believe that true unity in the faith means complete conformity. I don't think that's true. In fact, complete conformity in all matters of faith and practice usually is a bad thing. Why? Because it indicates, most times, that at least some of the people in the local congregation have not actually thought out the matters. They've not actually come to hold to the conclusion with heartfelt joy, but are just conforming. That's not a good thing. So unity, not conformity, is the goal. Unity in the faith means this, that there is a general, heartfelt, and abiding unity in all the most essential matters of faith and practice. So if someone disagrees with more of the major emphasis of the local church than they agree with, more of them than than they do hold to, they shouldn't join such a church, nor stay in it. This is the true value of confessionalism. That's why we're confessional at this church. Because we have a guide. We have something that protects us, something we can unite around. We have an objective standard, a brief exposition of all the key doctrines of Scripture that we can point to at this church, that we can find common joy in, there's the key word, joy in, and hold one another accountable to. However, if a local church is not to be a monolith, wherein every wherein complete conformity is the goal rather than unity in the faith, 
What kind of disunity is permissible? That's a question we must ask. What is healthy and unhealthy disunity? So that we be not a house that cannot stand, a kingdom that cannot stand. What's healthy and unhealthy disunity? Well, I can only really speak most effectively to our own congregation, our own church, how we've set things up since the beginning. At ARBC, we have three major doctrinal emphases that we have really worked on a lot. Confessionalism, the Lord's Day, and the text of Scripture. Those are the main things we've touched on. All three of which you may have disagreements with and still become and remain a member at this church. And as an official position of the church, we hold to the 1689 London Baptist Confession of Faith in the, in the original English. As the official summarized articulation of the doctrines taught in Scripture. That's what we believe it is. However, if someone takes issue with full subscriptionism, meaning I will, I will take this as a fully accurate articulation of the teachings of Scripture and subscribe to them and not deviate from them, if somebody has a problem with doing that, basically subscribing to a man-made document alongside Holy Scripture, which some people do, so long as they actually agree with the substance of the doctrines contained within it, they can still join the church. They can still remain in good standing in our church. They may hold to any of the major three eschatological views. I'm going to pick bones about that, whether it's historic pre-mill, historicist post-mill, amillennial, all that. Or if they maybe disagree on one clause or paragraph here or there, we can have a discussion about those things. And we do when we are doing interviews for membership. Some of you guys remember that. Maybe you're like, I don't know about this one thing. We talk it over, as long as it's not unorthodox, it's not heresy, you can't take exception with the Trinity, can't take exception with the atonement or hell, as long as it's orthodox still, you can still join. Now if someone agrees with the historic view, the reformed view of the text of scripture and prefers to use some accepted modern Bible translation over the authorized version, they can still join. They can still join and remain. In fact, in most of our membership interviews, this has never even been brought up unless it was brought up by the person, the interviewee. Use the Bible you will actually read. Use the Bible you'll read. That's what we hold to. There's multiple Bible translations here. We've been slandered before as doing something completely different, but we don't. Granted, if you start using the Message Bible... I'm going to have a serious discussion with you. In adherence to the London Baptist Confession's faith when it teaches on the Sabbath, it has been our practice at this church to allow people to disagree with the teaching entirely. Entirely. And still attend and become a member. But, with this caveat, they must remain regularly attending the public gatherings of the Lord's Day. And while they are at the Lord's Day, whether it's the fellowship or at church itself, they may not do things that break the Sabbath while in fellowship with the church. That's always been our position. I say all this to say this in in applying our text. We see that even in our three biggest emphases, there's room. There is room for what I think is healthy disunity. Healthy disunity. I have pastor friends from different denominations who would say, that's chaos, that's satanic, and that's confusion. The goal, of course, is that we would daily come more and more into agreement with one one another Mm. in a local body. We would daily grow more and more in agreement and unity as to what is to be believed in the Christian faith and how it is to be lived out. That's the goal. Thus, we must be patient with one another when there's disagreements. And when we do disagree with something, here's what we need to do. We need to study the matter down to the very bottom, as the Puritan Thomas Goodwin used to say. Statements such as, I don't know why I believe this, or I don't know why I don't believe this, are not acceptable from Christians, especially in a local church. Remember, in context with this, the work of Satan is to divide to divide and disunify the church, to fracture the church. He desires to destroy the work of Christ through his body on earth. He wants to make sure that it doesn't go forward. 
One way he does this is through sectarianism, causing people to care more about their own particular articulations of one doctrine over someone else's. This turns the glorious teachings of the scriptures into mere strife about words to no profit, 2 Timothy 2.14 we read today, or into debates about foolish questions and genealogies and contentions and strivings about the law which are unprofitable and vain, as Paul says in Titus 3.9. Now, the binding of the strong man. The binding of the strong man. This is where it all ties together. We turn next to Christ's words in defense of his ministry. These next ones are, in verse 27, No man can enter into a strong man's house and spoil his goods, except he will first bind the strong man, and then he will spoil his house. The strong man is Satan. Almost uniformly, interpreters take it that way. Satan would not still be active. He would not still be working. There wouldn't be demonic possessions. There wouldn't be all of these evils and destruction going on as Jesus is doing his ministry if Jesus was working for him. The reason that there is is because his kingdom is being destroyed by the works of Jesus at that very minute. No. By what Jesus was actively doing in his ministry, he was binding Satan and he was plundering his goods, plundering his house not laboring as a soldier in the devil's army. Only the gospel, dear congregation, only the gospel can bind Satan, can bind sinners, can bind wickedness, can cast down high and lofty thoughts that come against the knowledge of God. Only the gospel. Only the gospel of Jesus Christ can set the captives free from sin and from slavery and advance Christ's kingdom. Summation. The gospel destroys Satan. So we go out and preach the gospel. The works of Satan in any aspect of life, any sphere of life where he is working, the answer is always the gospel. Faithful proclamation of the gospel. Faithful adherence to Jesus Christ. And ultimately, the most effective way to do that as Christians is that we love Jesus. We foster and cultivate a deep and abiding and practical experiential love of Christ daily Mm. with our congregation and on our own, privately. Furthermore, it's not only Satan, but to apply it, it's also the sinner that is the strong man. He's a headstrong and rebellious man. Mm. In conversion, he is bound by Christ. Bound by Christ into holy union and love. He is delivered from his service to sin into the service of a good master, Jesus Christ. Remember, Jesus says this. I think it illustrates it perfectly. Matthew eleven twenty eight through 30. Jesus says, Come unto me, all ye that labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn of me, for I am meek and lowly in heart, and ye shall find rest unto your souls, for my yoke is easy and my burden is light. So you're you're transferring from one service to another. But one is good. One is full of joy. One is true freedom in being a servant. The other is death and hell and destruction. How then does Jesus bind the strong man of the sinner? He does so with bonds of blood-bought love. He binds sinners with the bands of blood-bought love. Here's a good illustration. In the late 1700s, there was a wealthy English nobleman who traveled to America to increase his riches even more. He went to California to work in procuring gold. After some years, he had attained even more wealth than you could even imagine. On his way back to England, he stopped in New Orleans to visit the famous slave trade market that was there. This was a common tourist attraction, if you can believe it, in that day. As he stood in the crowd, 
a beautiful young African woman was brought onto the platform and bidding for her began. Two men stood behind him, bidding on her. And he overheard them talking of what they would do to her if they purchased her, and it wasn't good. The nobleman then raised his hand to get the attention of the auctioneer. He said he wanted to buy her. I will pay double the highest price offered, he said. The auctioneer replied, Sir, are you sure? No one has ever paid so much for a slave girl. Ever. The nobleman replied, Yes, with all of my heart, I will pay double the highest price for this girl. The auctioneer shouted, Sold! The young woman was brought to him. The papers were signed that she is now his property, and she spit in his face. As you can imagine. The nobleman grabbed her by the hand. He took her into a building in in the downtown area of New Orleans. He signed some papers and walked out with her again. She again spat in his face. And he then said, ma'am, here are your emancipation papers. Emancipation papers. She spat again in his face. He said, ma'am, you don't understand. You are free. I'm giving you your freedom. I've purchased it. I purchased you out of slavery. And I've purchased your redemption from slavery. She then fell to his feet and wept, thanking him. She rose again and she said, Sir, I can never repay you for your demonstration of love. May I return with you and be your slave forever. That is Christian gratitude. That's a picture of the gospel. The Christ redeems us out of slavery to sin, to the devil, and the world. And we, in heartfelt gratitude and love to him, say, Be thou my master that I might follow thee, that I might serve thee all the days of my life. Better is one day in thy courts than thousands elsewhere. That is a beautiful picture of how we are bound by Christ. Third, last, truth rejected. Verses 28 through 30. Verily I say unto you, this is Jesus speaking, all sins shall be forgiven unto the sons of men. And blasphemies wherewith soever they shall blaspheme. But he that shall blaspheme against the Holy Ghost hath never forgiveness, but is in danger of eternal damnation, because they said he hath an unclean spirit. They attributed his work to Satan's. I remember a few years ago when I first was saved, 2008, there was a video going on. It was after that Zeitgeist movie came out, and they were showing how Christianity is fake or whatever. And there was people taking the blaspheme the Holy Spirit challenge and they're posting it online. We're being disgusted by it. So there's all sorts of wrong interpretations of what this is. And there's many, many Christians in all sorts of different denominations, even Reformed, that think they have done the unforgivable sin. They've committed it. That there is no forgiveness of them. They've blasphemed the Holy Spirit. Especially in depression, people will think this. And it's a fear that people really deal with. So what is it? What is the unforgivable sin? It's blasphemy. But a specific kind of blasphemy. A blasphemy of particular evil. A blasphemy which attributes the redemptive work of Christ to the work of Satan. Remember, the scribes and the Pharisees and the Jews were actually plotting now to kill Jesus for his work of redemption. Which obviously worked into his plan, his decree, that that is what he wanted, to be crucified. He came to be crucified so he could die on behalf of his people. But they thought with their wicked hands they were crucifying the author of life. They were crucifying Jesus because they hated him. They attributed attributed to him the work of Satan and of the devil. They were planning to kill him for his good work. Now some believe that this blasphemy of the Holy Ghost only ever happened once and it was in this time in Jesus' life when he was crucified. He was betrayed. They attributed the works he was doing to the works of Satan and then killed him for it. They said that was the blasphemy of the Holy Spirit. That's it. And those people in that moment were unable to ever be saved and it was just a unique experience that happened. Others believe they can occur again and people can become reprobate in this life. Maybe giving into some specific sin. Usually it's homosexuality or something. Once you go homosexual or LGBTQ or whatever, you're, you're irredeemable. You can't be saved. You can't come out of that. Some believe that as well. Or that a Christian can be saved. 
and then commit the unforgivable sin somehow and lose his salvation and is ir, uh, irretrievably damned. And they'll point to verses such as Hebrews 10 and Hebrews 6 and Hebrews 4 about those who have come to the knowledge once. They can't be, if they fall away, they can't be restored again. But the safest and most accurate view appears to be that the blasphemy, the blasphemy against the Holy Ghost is a life of perpetual resistance to and rejection of Christ and the salvation that he comes to offer, i.e., a person who never gets saved, a person who never receives Jesus Christ by faith unto salvation, rejects him their entire life, resists him their entire life with different degrees of knowledge. Some may have heard a very articulate gospel presentation or sat in church their whole life. Others may be fairly ignorant of Christianity altogether, have never even heard the name of Jesus. They still are resisting the Holy Spirit. They are still blaspheming the Holy Spirit because they're rejecting the Savior. They're not coming to him in faith for salvation. To apply this, let us be quick. Let us be quick in receiving the work of Christ in our own life and in our appeals to others to come to Christ. First, in our own life, let us close with Christ daily, as the Puritans used to say. Close with Christ daily. That means come into him with unity, daily. Make sure that you come to Christ every single day. Place your faith in him. Trust in him afresh for salvation. Bow gratefully and humbly and lovingly before him and plead the throne of grace, the mercy seat, that Christ's blood is enough, that it's sufficient for you, that you trust in it. Ask for the faith to believe even more and even more. This is not to have some you're saved every day. Don't misunderstand me. I'm saying that you apply the salvation that was once and for all procured for you, made effectual for you at your conversion every day as your joy. As the psalmist prayed, David, in Psalm 51, return unto me the joy of thy salvation, that I might work or walk in thy ways. By God's grace, dear congregation, we have not blasphemed the Holy Spirit. We have not committed the blasphemy of the Holy Ghost. But we have honored him in our justification, in our regeneration, and in our sanctification. So therefore, let us daily continue to do so. Let us daily continue to come to him. For if we love God in Christ and are assured by the inward testimony of the Holy Spirit bearing witness with our spirits that we are the children of God then we have no reason to fear his damnation. Remember 1 John 4.18 says, There is no fear in love, but perfect love casteth out fear. We do not stay in a constant state of fear. I don't know if I'm saved or not. I've done a bad thing. Did I blaspheme the Holy Spirit? No. We place our faith in Christ. Martin Luther used to say, when people asked, How do I know if I'm elect? He would say, Say your prayers. You'll know you're elect. See, is that. Continue to look to Christ. What is the answer when you fall into sin? Repent and believe. What is the answer when you go to get saved? Repent and believe. It's the same. So in our pleadings also to others. Next, let's look at that. We must remember that they all, everyone we encounter, every human being, shall stand before the judge of all the earth. That's a grave and solemn thing. It's no light matter. They'll stand at the judgment seat of Christ before him. They will give account of their deeds, both good and evil. They'll give an account of their rejection of Jesus Christ and of their blaspheming of the Holy Ghost. Ruth Ginsburg, that wicked judge who was wicked here on earth, has now stood before the only righteous judge and has been condemned for her wickedness in life. No amount of legal jargon No amount of wiggling shall save her now, nor any. I've heard people say, when I get to heaven, I'm going to talk to God about this. I'm going to have a word with him about this. And as Paul Washer always says, following that example, no, you will melt like a wax figurine before a blast furnace before his glory and holiness. You're not going to have any chance to defend yourself for anything you did. There is no buts. There's one but. But God. But God loved us and saved us. Dear congregation, let us then therefore watch and be jealous over our own hearts 
that we fall into no trap of sin, flesh, or Satan. Let us find our identity in Christ, who was slandered, who was betrayed and crucified for us. We must ever trust in our God and our Redeemer with all of our lives at every moment. And we will, in a moment, be able to celebrate the Lord's Supper where we can do that and think of that thing. Therefore, we have one thing to say. One thing. Christ. 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 All is Christ. More of Christ. That is our call as Christians. That is our proclamation as Christians. More of Christ. Less of us. Let us decrease and him increase in us. Satan is a strong man. But Jesus is stronger. Allow no root of bitterness towards God or man grow in your heart. Examine yourself, dear congregation. Set your eyes on Christ, who is our justification, sanctification, and glorification. In closing, we can say with David, King David in Psalm 23, Yea, though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I will fear no evil, whether it's evil of our own damning sins. For Christ is our Savior. Whether it's evil of man or the world coming against us, for Christ is all of our justification, and no charge can be laid against us, for we are in Christ Jesus. No, not even the evil of Satan against us, for he cannot touch even a hair of our heads when Christ is our defender. Amen. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, please apply thy word to us by the power of the Holy Spirit to see Christ more, give ourselves to him more. We thank thee, O Lord, for unity to Christ, union with Christ, and unity in Christ. We thank thee that thou hast done a work of binding Not only Satan, but also our own sinful, unconverted selves. Bringing us to thee as grateful servants, as sons and daughters in thy courts. Lord, we love thee and we thank thee. In Jesus' name, amen.